The scripture reading today is selected from Psalm 40. Please turn to the bulletin to read responsively. Hear the word of the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be counted. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, in the stillness of this moment and in the holiness of this place, we come before you seeking a word from you. Break the silence of heaven and through the scripture and through the preaching of your word, speak to us as if we were the only children in your mind and heart, a word that will lead us closer to you who will never fail us or forsake us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in our sermons through the fall, we're looking together at the teaching of our Lord Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I began this new series of sermons last week. And as we look at the Sermon on the Mount in particular, we're focusing on a passage that we call the Beatitudes. These are nine statements that form the introduction or the preface at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' teaching found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the gospel account of his life and ministry uh, that we call St. Matthew. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And at the beginning of chapter 5, the statements of beatitude, blessedness or happiness, with which Jesus begins the whole of the sermon. Last week I spoke about blessedness and happiness, and the word in Greek there is makarios. Makarios, actually, it's just a common word. It's not a holy word, so it could incorporate blessedness, but it would be used in common speech for happiness. God wants us to be happy. Jesus wants us to be happy. And we'll think a little bit more about what kind of happy in a minute, but happiness is not a theme that Jesus invents out of nowhere. But in fact, when we look back at the Old Testament, even though that we sometimes think of the Old Testament as so serious and somber that there's no joy in it, that is simply not the case, though it is more serious and somber in general than the New Testament, we find that God has a concern for our happiness there as well. In fact, 
in the writings of two of Israel's greatest kings, or the writings inspired by those kings, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, King David, King Solomon, there is a repeated concern for happiness. goes all the way back to those two kings in the pages of Scripture. Last Sunday, we looked at some of the Psalms. There are about 20 of them which speak about God's passion for our happiness. And they're linked with King David. He wants his kingdom to be a happy kingdom, and he speaks about it in the Psalms. But then there's the book of Proverbs and King Solomon, who is the inspiration for the book of Proverbs and probably the author of some of them, who over 10 occasions speaks about happiness. So here are a few of them. Proverbs 3, happy are those who find wisdom. Proverbs 16, happy are those who are kind to the poor. Proverbs 20, happy are those who trust in the Lord. Proverbs 31, happy are those who keep God's law. And by the way, if you look back to our scripture reading, our responsive scripture reading, one of the happy words in there is happy in the psalm that we read earlier as well. So these two kings, David and Solomon, have a concern not to just speak in general about happiness, but to build a realm, to build a kingdom, to rule over people, and to bring them this happiness of what's, which they speak about in what they write in the Psalms and in the book of Proverbs. And Jesus, the king, picks up on this. It's not accidental that he picks up on this. He is following in the footsteps of these kings who have gone before him, and he, the new king of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the same thing wants his kingdom to be a happy place. So right at the beginning of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, before we get to chapter 5, we read in chapter 4 of Matthew these words at verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's the king, and he's saying there's a new realm, a new citizenship that I want for you who hear me. And he cures every disease and every sickness among the people, and great crowds follow him from Galilee, the Decapolis, that's uh, 10 Greek and Roman cities in the region, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So he's talking about the whole of the area of Israel, Lebanon, southern part of Syria, the new nation, the more modern nation of Jordan. People are coming from all over that area to hear him speak about the kingdom of God. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. So he's not only like David and Solomon, a new king, but he's like Moses who receives God's word up on the mountain to share with the people. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or right-relatedness with people and with God, for they will be filled Happy are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, 
for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice, be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these statements are the Beatitudes. These statements about blessedness or happiness. They are not the principles of the governments of this world. They are the principles of the governments, govern, gov, governance of God in the kingdom of God, the kingdom into which Jesus invites us, within which he wants us to live, as it were, as dual citizens. So we're citizens of whatever nation on earth we belong to. But he says, your ultimate citizenship, you need to conceive of it as being in my realm and under my authority, my gracious rule. And these are the principles of my realm. You go to another country, you get off the plane, you walk into the country, and you don't know all the rules and the regulations, and you think some of them are strange. Some of the laws are the same, but some are different. Every realm is constituted by different principles. Here are the principles of the realm over which Jesus rules as king. But to begin with, of course, when we look at these principles, they may seem rather strange. Well, going to any foreign country to begin with seems rather strange. Things are not quite the same as they are wherever we come from. But in this case, these principles seem at times to be rather jarring. So Jesus brings together happiness and persecution. How in the world can that be? Or happiness and meekness. What a strange juxtaposition. Happiness and grieving. Happiness and poverty of spirit. This happiness that Jesus is speaking about then is clearly not the kind of happiness that comes from mere entertainment or the media of one sort or another or from spending all our days looking at our cell phones and trying to figure out what's going on in the world through them. This is a different kind of a happiness. This is not the kind of happiness that Neil Postman was speaking about when he said that in our Western world, we are amusing ourselves to death. Now, there's something else going on here. But even as we say this is strange and different, perhaps the door becomes open to say, maybe this is a kind of happiness, well, that money can't buy that is actually open to people who might think that all opportunity for happiness is long since lost, has long since gone. Maybe the folks who survived the Twin Towers or the Pentagon on 9-11, but their lives forever changed or have had some other traumatic experience in life and the enjoyment of life the ability to fulfill life the way that one thought life was going to be fulfilled, they were gone, and happiness with it. So they thought, maybe there's a possibility that the kind of happiness that Jesus speaks about is available for those who cannot find it anywhere else. But that possibility, of course, only begs the question as to what Jesus really does have in mind when he speaks about happiness in these contrasting ways. Happy are the meek, happy are those grieving and mourning, happy are those in the midst of persecution, 
Happy are those who are poor in spirit. So what I want to do beginning this morning and what we're going to be doing in the days ahead is to look at these Beatitudes and generally speaking through them, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to see if we can get a grasp of what Jesus is saying. And I'm going to follow uh, a well-known Reformation principle to say that Scripture interprets Scripture. And that if we're going to find out what Jesus is saying in these strange phrases, perhaps we find some of the answer to that in some of the stories and the teaching that Jesus teaches elsewhere. Most of the time, I'll stick to the Sermon on the Mount to show what Jesus, or to try to show what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. I think they're illustrative of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But today, I'm actually going to focus on Jesus' teaching as we find it in the Gospel according to St. Luke, some particular stories that we only find in the Gospel according to St. Luke. So we're asking, so Jesus says, uh, happy are those who are poor in spirit. We're asking, so what does that mean to be poor in spirit? And why does happiness lie there? Well, if we do turn to Luke's gospel, I can find at least three stories or incidents in which Jesus, I think, is giving to us some kind of understanding of what it is to be poor in spirit, or to begin with at least, what it is not to be poor in spirit. So in Luke chapter 16, for example, Jesus describes somebody who is not poor in spirit. He tells the story of a rich man as well as a poor man by the name of Lazarus. And the rich man is clearly arrogant. He's clearly self-centered. He thinks that happiness lies in all his accumulated wealth and in his stature in society, and perhaps in particular in his ability to control people, to get what he wants when he wants it. And I think there are times when we're all tempted to think that if I can only get what I want when I want it, I'll be happy. So in the story, this man has the goal to think he can boss around Abraham, the central patriarch of the whole of the, the Jewish faith, and to tell him what to do at his beck and call. And what's clear from the story is that Jesus has no time for this person, that he's never going to end up happy, and in no way is he poor in spirit. Same kind of character appears in another story of Jesus just a couple of chapters later. So that was Luke chapter 16. If you move to Luke chapter 18, Jesus speaks about a religious person, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were part of a religious renewal movement in ancient Israel. And another man who's a tax collector. Tax collectors were generally Jewish people who worked for the Romans. The Romans said, collect the taxes. If you want to take some extra cream off the top, you can do that. And we won't uh, pay any attention to that so long as you deliver to us what is owed to us. So they took a lot from their own people. So this religious person comes up to pray. And as he prays, <clears throat> he basically is thanking God that he's better than other people. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this person or that person or the next person. No poverty of spirit there. Whereas the other man, this tax collector, has a very simple and straightforward prayer. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's very clear that this is not rote, but he means it. He means it. And Jesus says, this is the good guy. 
This is the guy who ultimately is going to find happiness because he knows deep down in a profound sense his need of mercy. It's what I'm looking for, a hint into the world of being poor in spirit. And then the third story that I want to draw attention to from Luke's Gospel is the one that I shared with the children. It's from the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, the story that we generally call uh, the story or the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe well known to many of you, and I've shared it with the children so far, but I really do want you to think about this story in the days that lie ahead of us and what's going on here and where we may find ourselves somewhat within that story. An adult son with his father. The son feels as if he's poor. Father has the money. The older generation, it seems to many, always do. And he wishes, and this is the awful part of the story, he wishes his dad was dead right here and now so he could get a hold of the cash. But his father's alive. We might, in our worst moment, think about this. He didn't just think about it. He acted on it. He goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. As if to say, I wish you were dead. I want it now. And in the story, and remember, it's a story that Jesus tells, and there are always bits and pieces of the story where we go, well, that would never happen. Well, stranger things happen. The father says, yes, I'll give you half of uh, what I have. I'll give you your share of the inheritance. This young man is full of himself. What gall he has. What arrogance he has. But he now has the money as well, and he thinks he's going to be happy in spending the money, and maybe in some sense he is happy until, of course, the money runs out. And then he's not happy, and he has to work on the farm, and he has to work with the pigs, and he has to eat what the pigs offer. And so he's poor. He's moved from being rich to being poor. That's a big move. But he's not poor in spirit yet. Before he gets to being poor in spirit, he's poor me first. He feels sorry for himself. And many people think that feeling sorry for ourselves is being poor in spirit. But actually feeling sorry for ourselves is actually rather self-centered. Being poor in spirit is a step further than that when somehow we move out of ourselves into a whole new world where we know the truth about ourselves and we know our need and we take action on it. So there's poor, there's poor me, and then finally there's poor in spirit. And there's this wonderful moment in the story that Jesus tells when this young man comes to his senses and he realizes that there is a way out of this. The trouble is the way out of it is not really what he wants to do or what any of us want to do, and that's to eat humble pie, to go back to his father, the very person he wished were dead, and say he's sorry in a way that has the ring of truth about it. Who wants to do that? But poor in spirit is when you reach that moment. When you reach that moment. And it's precisely at that moment when you think that all happiness is gone, that in fact the possibility of divine happiness, Jesus' happiness, begins to be open. That door begins to be open again, and he, he reaches that moment, and he takes action. And he heads back to his father. And there is that most wonderful scene of the father's, not only open brace, but running, running towards the son to welcome him home. 
And there's a happiness there which nothing can ever take away from that moment on. But it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't moved from poor to poor me, to poor in spirit. If you want a modern illustration of poor in spirit, I can think of nothing better than thinking about the first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and their 10-step program. We all know some of us may be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we all know the changes that have been wrought in people's lives because of this simple program. There are other programs out there, but over the years, incredible changes in people's lives through this program. But the first three steps are these. We admitted that we were powerless over our problem and that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. That is poor in spirit. A decision. And actually acting on it. Which can feel like the hardest thing in the world to do. But the power of change and potential for happiness within that is simply enormous. Poor, poor me. Poor in spirit. Poor enough to do something about it. The late Catholic priest and author Henry Nouwen believed he could see this transition towards being poor in spirit in the life and the paintings of the great Dutch artist Rembrandt. If you turn to your sermon notes, you can see the pictures that I'm going to refer to, and they should be on the screen for those of you who are at home. Henry Nouwen wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal. And in that book, he says that if you look at Rembrandt's early paintings and the ones sort of in the middle of his painting career and then at the end of his life, you can see a transition in the way he portrays people and in particular the way he portrays himself. Let me read a fairly extended section from the book. When I look at the profoundly interiorized self-portraits, writes Henry Nouwen, which Rembrandt produced during his last years and which explained much of his ability to paint the luminous old father in the, the return of the prodigal, we must not forget that as a young man, Rembrandt had all the characteristics of the prodigal son himself. Brash, self-confident, spendthrift, sensual, very arrogant. Self-portraits painted during his late 20s and early 30s reveal Rembrandt as a man hungry for fame and adulation, fond of extravagant costumes, preferring golden chains to the traditional starched white collars, sporting outlandish hats and berets and helmets and turbans. At the age of 30, midst of growing success, he painted himself with his wife Saskia deliberately as the lost prodigal son in a brothel. No interiority is visible there. Drunk with his half-open mouth and sexually greedy eyes, he glares scornfully at those who look at his portrait as if to say, mm, isn't this a lot of fun? Isn't this where happiness is to be found? In fact, the short period of success, popularity, and wealth wasn't going to last too long. It's going to be followed, says Nouwen, by much grief, misfortune, and disaster. Trying to summarize the many misfortunes of Rembrandt's life can be overwhelming, he writes. They are not unlike those of the prodigal son after having lost his son in 1635, his first daughter in 1638, his second daughter in 1640. Rembrandt's wife, Saskia, whom he deeply loved and admired, dies in 1642. How traumatic is that? 
Rembrandt is left behind with his nine-month-old son, Titus. During these years, also Rembrandt's popularity as a painter plummeted. His financial problems became so severe that in 1656, Rembrandt is declared insolvent. All of his possessions are sold at auction, including his house and everything in it, during 1657 and 1658. Although Rembrandt would never become completely free of debt and debtors in his early 50s at last, he is able to now find a modicum of peace. The increasing warmth and interiority of his paintings during this period show that the many disillusionments did not embitter him. On the contrary, they had a purifying effect on his way of seeing. One person comments, he began to regard man and nature with an even more penetrating eye, no longer distracted by outward splendor or theatrical display. Now and says, as he looks at the painting of the prodigal son kneeling before his father and pressing his face against the chest, now and says, I cannot but see this too as a self-portrait. The once so self-confident and venerated artist who has come to the painful realization that all the glory that he had gathered for himself proved to be vainglory. Instead of the rich garments with which a youthful Rembrandt painted himself in the brothel, he now wears a torn under tunic covering his emaciated body and the sandals in which he has walked so far have become worn out and useless. The glittering light in earlier painting, reflecting golden chains, harnesses, helmets, candles, hidden lamps has died out. And we see the movement from the glory and seduction of wealth and popularity as the source of happiness to the glory that is hidden in the human soul and that surpasses death this powerful movement in this man's life. From rich to poor, in his case, quite possibly to poor me, though I don't know about that, but certainly in the end, to poor in spirit. And more at peace, with a more profound happiness than he's had, says now and before. Happy, says Jesus, are the poor in spirit, those who are poor enough in spirit to know that they are too weak to help themselves. Are we in that category? Do we know that? Not just in our heads, but in our lives and in our being happy, said Jesus, are the poor in spirit, those who are poor enough to eat humble pie, to bury their pride, to get whatever help they need in order to change their circumstances. Are we poor in spirit in that kind of way? And what humble pie are we willing to eat to make a change within our lives? Happy, said Jesus, are the poor in spirit, poor enough to know that by the grace of God, even in our poverty, our pain and loss, even for some folks who may be here who suffered indescribably at 9-11, or worse, at different times in your life, before then or since then. Happy, said Jesus, are the poor in spirit, who know that no matter what, like the prodigal son, they belong to their Father in heaven, to the King of kings, who will never fail them or forsake them. Look to Jesus, the King. Be a part of his reign and realm and kingdom and pray to God for this kind of happiness. Let us pray.
Almighty God, we come before you. Help us to know your grace within our lives and not be too proud to seek it out or to go to someone close to us for help. Come by your Spirit and give us that poverty of spirit which leads to your happiness. Through Christ we pray. Amen.